So welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio. Um, I'm Zoe Swithenbank, part of the uh, the podcast team, and I'm joined today by uh, Drs. Amy O'Donnell and Kat Jackson, who are going to tell us a little bit about their recently published paper. Hi, welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks, Zoe. Hi. So um, we're going to talk about your paper that's just been published in Addiction, which is you know, really interesting. Um, could you tell us maybe a little bit about the project that the paper's from? Certainly. Um, the, the paper is based on a sub-study that's part of a larger piece of work um, called the ADEPT study, and that's actually funded by the National Institute for Health and Social Care Research through an advanced fellowship. And the whole sort of purpose of that um, piece of work is to look at how we can improve care for people with coexisting heavy drinking and depression. And there have been sort of two parts to that that piece of work. So the first um, phase, if you like, was about really um, exploring the kind of experiences um, of, of those who receive and deliver care to really understand kind of what's happening in that particular space. Um, and in the second phase, we want to work with patients, with the wider public and with care providers to try and develop some sort of tool or, or resources that might um, sort of better help people with heavy drinking and depression um, to access and engage with care um, more effectively than that is currently happening. So this was a, a part of that, which was um, interviews with staff and patients, service users? That That's right. And this paper um, reports on the, the interviews with, with service users. And, and we call them that specifically because whilst it includes people we recruited because they were patients, um, for example, through primary care, it's um, really kind of anybody who has experience of, of those co-occurring conditions. So some of these people kind of self-identified as having um, heavy drinking and depression, or they were maybe um, identified through their um, engagement with sort of local voluntary and community sector organisations, for example. Um, so for this, you use relational autonomy. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why do you think it's important to, to kind of use that lens to look at the health and social care system? Relational autonomy is really a broad theoretical concept. Um, it can be used in lots of different ways. Um, it was originally proposed by feminist scholars, feminist bioethics, as an approach to understanding autonomy and agency, um, which recognises how social and economic systems and personal relationships and ties uh, challenge or support the development of people's capacities for agency. Um, I think many of the assumptions underpinning sort of the configuration and practices of statutory health and social care um, are really very different to this. They're premised on the notion of the idea of individual responsibility um, and often that people need to demonstrate their willingness to engage in services and a desire to, to help, to sort of desire for help in order to access support. So relational autonomy really provides a challenge to this and a real challenge to kind of, I think, maybe I'm sounding a little bit um, it's it, it's really it's really a different way of thinking about what it is to be human and what helps our well-being and what we need to do, to do to access services and support and how, how we live well. Um, I've got a little definition from um, McLeod and Sherwin, which I'm just going to read out. They define um, relational autonomy as um, autonomy being defined and pursued in a social context and illustrating that social context significantly influence the opportunity someone has to develop or express autonomy skills. 
Um, so that's thinking of um, social context as both kind of material circumstances. So that's kind of our financial circumstances, um, housing, um, food that can really change the op our opportunities in life. But it also emphasises kind of how sort of subjective beliefs, um, oppressive beliefs um, can damage how people want to act. So we know that um, people who experienced alcohol use and mental ill health kind of individually can really um, experience a lot of stigma, which can really be a barrier to accessing help, both asking for help and having help offered. Um, so that is very real for people and very felt. Um, and I think also the emphasis within relational autonomy on people being independent, interdependent and embedded in social systems, sort of in social relationships, um, really emphasises how that affects people's self-worth and that people really feel that they want to be acknowledged and have relationships to support them. So thanks for that. that that's a really interesting perspective. Um, why do you think that it's important to explore the, the experiences of, of this population of, of accessing uh, health and social care systems? I think we already know, we knew going into the ADEPT study, I, I mean, that's why it was designed, is that we recognise that this population already um, experienced significant inequalities um, in terms of health outcomes and in accessing services. We know this from sort of um, empirical academic evidence, but we also know it from cl clinical knowledge that this is seen as a population who often fall through the gaps in services. There haven't been many studies from um, people's experiences of the people who have experienced it. So and what we wanted to explore here was what really matters to people in those systems. Um, and I think I want to emphasise that really, to understand what people really see as important when they're experiencing these challenges. What perhaps don't we know what haven't we considered and how can we help them and just to sort of chip in I think kind of how how they feel when they're dealing with all the problems that are, are fairly well documented outside our study uh, what that actual impact that has on their own kind of self-worth worth um and sense of self um I think the the other factor just to mention was um the the wider study itself has quite an interest in the kind of opportunities, but also limitations of using digital technology to um, better kind of coordinate and provide care. But again, we also know that that can be kind of highly problematic and exclusionary for a lot of people, particularly people who don't have kind of, you know, much uh, financial resources available to them. So again, when we were trying to think, well, what could we do to improve care? We thought it's absolutely critical that we ask the people themselves who need to benefit from any kind of technological or, or interventions, improvements, um, what they thought of that and, and um, what sort of challenges they might um, experience in, in implementing sort of new, new and improved services. Was that something that participants were generally enthusiastic about or did they you know, I know a lot changed sort of during the, the course of the pandemic and a lot of things are available digitally, but obviously that excludes some people. So, yeah, did you have any, any any thoughts on that? I think it varied, really varied. I think I think it was an interesting time to be doing the study because we were, as Amy just mentioned, we were doing it as we in the, in the fieldwork was done in 2021, 2022. So 
if we'd been doing it prior to the pandemic, I think people would have had very different reflections to the ones um, that they had when we actually interviewed them. But I think, I mean, what came through was in the main, a lot of people experienced quite a lot of digital exclusion and real challenges to using digital technologies. Um, some people, there were some real, um, there were definitely some people who really found it hard to access them, um, didn't have access to, um, you know, they don't they have to go to the library to access the computer for 20 minutes. They, cut, um, they haven't got a mobile phone that's working. Um, they haven't got the money to afford for forward credit for their phone because they're having to prioritise in their day to day lives what's the most important. Um, but on the other hand, there were people who were quite positive about digital technologies and had and had had positive experiences. Um, and some people did talk about kind of using and an, as an example in the paper, actually, where um, we've got a person who'd used an online um, sort of counselling service and was able to get support for both their mental health and their alcohol use um, at the same time, which has seemed to be very unusual. Um, but I would say that was um, an atypical case, whereas the majority um, hadn't really had positive experiences of digital technology. Right, so that's that's really interesting because I know it is something that we we seem to be shifting towards and not always acknowledge that that's not for everyone. Um, I mean, speaking of that kind of issue, did you did you have trouble recruiting for this study? Because you know, I know recruiting people with with substance use issues and all the rest of it can be really challenging. Uh, was that something that you you faced? Because you ended up with quite a, a big sample in the end, didn't you? Yeah. No, I think um, we reflected on this really. I think. We overall, we had a, a positive um, experience of recruiting for this study, although I think with, mo like with most studies, it took longer than we initially um, intended. Um, I think um, we really benefited from already having a number of um, sort of local contacts in organisations in the region who we could reach out to initially to start the recruitment off. So I worked really closely in the early stages with two particular organisations. Um, who kind of started the yeah who get us got us started with the recruitment um um so one was an organization i went visited a couple of times and in person and did the interviews in person at that service another was an organization that sort of sent out an email to all their um people who access their services and then they got people got in touch with me directly um from there, we, we have, and those were both in one particular part of the study region, um, an urban area, but the, the region that we're covering, the northeast and North Cumbria, um, is very diverse. So it's both got large rural pockets, coastal and sort of, as I mentioned, real urban sort of density. Um, and we were really keen to reach some of those areas that perhaps often aren't reached with um, these types of studies. So we really wanted to make sure we um, went to the borders of the region, sort of into Northumberland um, and North Cumbria. And we really spent kind of a lot of time trying to make contact with organisations who perhaps we didn't have those original contacts with um, to recruit participants who perhaps um, we perhaps wouldn't have otherwise been able to. So I went on um, multiple visits to an organisations yeah, in Northumberland and a few different organisations in, in North Cumbria to the extent that when I stopped going to the organisation in North Cumbria, they said that I felt like part of the team <laughs> and they were going to miss me. So that was really nice. <laughs> but um, I think also to, uh, one of the benefits of kind of recruiting for a qualitative study is it's quite iterative and it can be quite purposeful. So we were noticing that we hadn't um, 
recruiting as many women. So we very purposely, purposely tried to um, go to women's groups or try to recruit women by going to women's organisations. Um, and similarly, we tried to capture um, a level of um, representation from members of the black and minority ethnic communities. Um, but unfortunately, as we say in the paper, we didn't, and we recognise it as a limitation, that we didn't manage to um, include as many people as we would have hoped, but that's something we'd like to consider for future research. Um, in terms of um, tips or advice for researchers doing this study, um, I think to be to be kind of realistic about how long it's going to take and kind of the importance of building up those got trusted relationships. And I think I'm I'm always a big one for thinking actually it's really helpful to be present and for people to see you before they're willing to kind of take part in a qualitative research, whether that's a focus group or an interview or ethnography or whether, with you to build up those relationships first. Um, and it's important to factor in that time. Um, I think it's also important to have a thick skin. You know, not everyone you meet and everybody who says you're going to do it, they're going to do it initially. It's going to it's going to do it for various reasons. This is a population who experiences um, a lot of challenges. And um, yeah, it's just to be mindful that this isn't their priority. It might be your priority trying to get them, but it's not their priority. So um, just yeah, just being aware that that you have to keep trying you have to keep contacting lots of groups um and lots of people to try and get your final sample there's a really nice resource as well that i've come aware of which is the um that i'd encourage people to look at if you're trying to engage with community groups to access participants which is the nihr community engagement toolkit because that um, suggests ways of accessing uh, community groups and how to work with them um, it talks about the importance of kind of reci reciprocity. So like you're asking them for something, but it's nice to be able to offer something back and to keep in keep in touch with them afterwards, which we've been trying to do through. We've got a study newsletter, kind of update people where we are with the study and what we're trying to do and how their involvement has been used. OK, well, that's brilliant. I think you know, having done some qualitative stuff myself, it can be really difficult to uh, build up those relationships and then you can feel a bit like once you've done the interviews it's yeah. like you know thanks bye now so yeah, yeah keeping people up to date and, and in touch with, with what's going on is, is a really a newsletter seems like a really nice way of doing it do you mention a, um, a ppi group so a patient uh, public patient involvement group is that something that was set up as part of the, the wider study it was yes but there were some um sort of members of that group that have actually been involved prior to to getting funding so a lot of the direction of of the study and and the kind of some of the areas of focus for for adept um were very influenced by sort of meetings and contacts that i'd had with um local people with lived experience of alcohol and other drug use um and and mental ill health. So um, I would like to think that they, you know, they very much kind of shaped what we were doing from from the outset. Um, but we then subsequently um, set up a group of people with, with lived experience that we've worked with really throughout the study in, in lots of different ways um, at, at sort of key stages of the research, but also really trying to keep people um, in, in touch and up to date um, as we progressed. Um, I think it's always Im immensely 
challenging to do so. Um, I think particularly with a group who are likely to be, even when they're in recovery, um, continuing to experience some some challenges and issues. You know, life is up and down for for a, lo- a lot of us, and we've certainly found that in our kind of PPI work when certain individuals are sort of dipped in or out of of, of contact for a bit. Um, but but yes, they've been involved. I'm I'm trying to think of sort of specific. I mean, some kind of fairly standard um, support around how we kind of tailored our materials, how we think about the um, kind of topic guides, patient information leaflets, approach to recruitment. Um, But we've also um, sought to involve them with how we kind of interpret um, and and share the the research. So um, giving them sort of extracts of of kind of um, primary data and asking people to kind of reflect on what it means to them and um you know are some of our were some of our initial themes sort of meaningful and and sort of valid did they kind of reflect the the reality of what it's like to be trying to access care when you're kind of going through the these issues um i don't know kat if you've got any other um yeah yes um i think i should have said it when i was talking about recruitment is that they did put us in touch with some organizations to contact for the recruitment and they did put us in touch with some individuals to interview for the study as well um so that was really really helpful and I think they were we, we don't there's another component of the study that I think that Amy mentioned at the beginning where we've done co-design workshops which we don't report in the paper but um they've been absolutely integral to that getting people there and being the face of the study and making people feel comfortable in those settings as well so and suggesting really the venues that people are going to like to come to and food that they're going to want to eat so yeah they've been really important and yeah and those conversations for the analysis and the interpretation have been so important. Yeah, they've been really important to kind of sense check with them and for them to feed in. And when we when we report the analysis in the paper, we say how we sort of slightly modified our interpretation based on what they told us in those discussions. It is always challenging, um, much like Kat um, mentioned in relation to how long it takes to do a, a good solid piece of, of qualitative research. The same applies with, um, you know, good, meaningful PPI work. And I think it's very easy to underestimate how much time it will take to do it well. Um, I do think there are also some kind of ethical challenges that we're trying to be mindful of um, because this is a time limited study. You know, we've got another year to go and then that funding ends. Um and it, it just would be extremely disappointing to have engaged these fabulous individuals who've got so much to contribute to work in this space um, and then not provide them with opportunities to to sort of carry on getting involved in kind of research and activity in this area. And so we, we are trying to do that where we can. So identifying other studies and um, opportunities that they can get involved. So, um, you know, have some sort of legacy, I guess, from from the work um, beyond the um, the funded period. Oh, I think that's great because yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of work doing all this PPI stuff, and obviously has, has had a massive impact, which is great. But you know, being able to continue that and hopefully work with other other studies, you know, would be great. I think we're still learning about how to do PPI as well. I think it's just a constant process of learning how to do it with the members as well. Um, and we're actually presenting at the SSA conference 
about our experiences of that with some I think some of the some of the challenges that we've experienced but we'll, with also some kind of hints and tips I think of what we've learned so another thing that I, I really enjoyed seeing in the paper was that you, you talk a bit about um you know, your own sort of positionality as researchers and that's you know quite important in qualitative research but something that doesn't always get a lot of um airspace really in, in terms because you know publishing word limits and all the rest of it um kind of like to know why, why you thought that was obviously important enough to include uh, and how it impacted on, on your experiences yeah I think I think you kind of said it there I think it's absolutely integral that we include um, positionality um, in reports of our findings and our interpretations. I think, you know, it's always important to acknowledge and can reflect some positionality in any research, really. Um, but there are, like you say, there are challenges around that in terms of word limits, but it inevitably affects how we carry out research and kind of how we interpret the findings. And, you know, I come from a position where I think research is more rigorous if we acknowledge our positionality rather than try to ignore it you know it, it affects every type of research and we need to be really open and explicit about that and it's sometimes hard to choose kind of especially in, a, in an academic paper which aspects of your positionality to to include and kind of how much information to include about your own life but I think the bits I wanted to reflect on in the paper were that you know I don't have personal lived experience of heavy drinking and depression I think like most people have people I know um, maybe extended family members who have experienced them either individually or together but I don't personally have lived experience of that so I didn't come to the study uh, the field work or the um, analysis with that experience and that's why it has been so important to have um, those conversations with our lived experience advisory group um, when we were developing the um, interpretation um, I think another bit of my position another aspect of kind of my positionality I reflected on was that um, I come from a a position of relative privilege um, as a as a middle class woman I haven't experienced um, the effects of poverty that many of our participants have um, that have such an important effect on people's day-to-day -day life both kind of materially and subjectively um, and I think again that's where our lived experience advisory group and kind of engagement with um, other literature and the theory really helped with the interpretation um, so I think that's, yeah, that's the decision to include those kind of aspects of, I think for me, there was no, there was no, I was always going to include my positionality, but then it's a decision about which aspects of your positionality are important um, yeah. to reflect on. Um, yeah, that's what I chose to reflect on. And um, just in relation to the word count challenge, which I think for qualitative researchers in particular can always be um, a tricky issue to overcome. Um, I think we had a lot of support and encouragement from the editors and reviewers at Addiction to really provide um, quite unusually detailed methods for this study, which um, I think is useful and helpful and, um, and valid. And I hope that other readers of the paper also find it um, helpful when thinking about how they um, present their own research. Yeah, definitely. So as an early career researcher, it's something that comes up a lot with, you know, how do we get qualitative research published? You know, all, all these really important things to include, but mm -hmm. limited word count. So it's, it's great to hear that 
you know, the addiction are really supportive and it's great to see that sort of stuff in a paper yeah I think they, I mean I've, I've watched the addiction po- podcast um, I don't know if it's podcast or it's videos around qualitative research in addictions and they've been really really helpful for my development yeah so I'd just like to flag that too as something that I encourage people to watch um, and also there's the I think some I've attended some of there's the journal methods clubs as well um, qualitative journal methods clubs which have been really good to look through some of the um, reports of those as well so with sort of other examples of qualitative research in addictions. Well that's really interesting thank you without giving away the ending so to speak um, what's the kind of key take-home message that you want to get across from this paper? So um, I was talking about the analysis there um, I think what we found as we we're analysing the data was that the um, sort of the challenges of autonomy and people's capacity to for agency really cut across the data that we collected um, and we were noticing that this really sort of um, related to kind of both the social determinants of health but also kind of the fundamental need people sort of were expressing this really fundamental need for feeling cared for and having care in their everyday life and, and that seemed to be very much lacking um, so I think we kind of um, really wanted to show that which is why we we turned to the theory um, I think one of the key findings for me was that the system particularly seems to be failing people who are socioeconomically marginalised um, and people who don't have any relational resources um, and how that really affects their capacity to kind of engage with, with services. Um, so we came up with this sort of two main themes and topics. So the first was lack of recognition. So within that, um, we've included a few different aspects of kind of people's accounts. Uh, firstly, that people didn't feel that their explanations for alcohol use are recognised. Um, they're often told to manage their alcohol use first. But actually, most people that we spoke to felt that they were drinking because they were depressed. Um, I think people it's often treated very separately and that people aren't always asked about both um, together, even though they feel that they're so um, related. Um, and that's where kind of people aren't asked about both, but they also find it hard to disclose it because of all the stigma around it. So that really came through. And then there was this kind of sense, like overarching sort of sense of personal responsibility to manage their care themselves or to disclose it themselves. As one of the challenges people faced was kind of um, that the kind of their need, that kind of the fact that they're experiencing heavy drinking and depression, um, and the kind of the additional but you know challenge of that, um, they're still expected to turn up for appointments and time, um, and if they don't turn up for appointments and they're penalised for that, and they might be removed from the waiting list, so that wasn't being recognised either in their interactions with services. Um, and I think something that that I feel quite strongly about in the findings was that issue of self-referral and um, a lot of people were kind of um, falling through the gaps when they were told to self-refer because um, it can be really hard I think one of my patients said you know I'd sort of um, really got up on my courage to to talk to the, G- the GP about my sort of alcohol use and my depression and then they told me they referred me to the local, local alcohol service and I didn't contact them for another four years because, you know, they took, took it all their energy and courage to actually contact the GP in the first place. And then they didn't, you know, they didn't take the next steps because for whatever reason. So um, I think that 
that came through really strongly for me and there were lots of types of examples of that I think we've got another example in in the paper there um so the other theme so that was kind of around lack of recognition in a few different dimensions of that the other main area that we've identified is this nowhere to go and um some of that's you know that's always already been written about a lot this idea that people are turned away from mental health services um if they're drinking heavily um and then they're kind of just left to manage their al alcohol use and if they can manage their alcohol use then they're allowed back into the mental health services um but I think what came through really strongly for us was this kind of like feeling of isolation and loneliness that comes with that and the feeling that um, no one's they felt that nobody's taking responsibility for them and nobody cares for them. Um, so I think it was that kind of effective dimension that that was that I think I really wanted to emphasise in the paper was that it's just it's not just being turned away from services and not having a service to go to. It's how that makes people feel that no one's valuing them and no one wants to help them. Um, and that goes along with that idea of personal responsibility. And from that, I think it was really important, the role that we kind of then went on to show some positive examples of support and kind of where people's relational autonomy have been supported. And I think what came through strongly was that um, idea that someone was checking in on them and caring for them was where people were starting to get better. I think whether that was through, you know, whether that was through involvement with other, other peer networks or whether it was having a worker who was just you know like I said just checking in on them that seemed to make a huge difference and the, I think what I think I want to emphasize is peer networks are a really important resource in this space you know there's a lot of you know um organizations who do offer peer support but there are also people who don't know about that or who don't feel able to access that um in certain areas it's not available it's very very you know it's very different across different parts of the region as to what's available so I think and that and there's still an emphasis on people to, to take that next step as well so I think I think um it's important to kind of recognize that there is this population can be quite lonely and isolated um I think for for myself when I went into this piece of work I think the focus was probably on some of the more kind of structural or, or functional aspects of what isn't working with with people's care but I think through this study we have been able to understand the kind of more in more depth um the impact that has on people's um sort of you know own sort of feelings and and sort of sense of worth etc and so this is why it, it's kind of quite a twofold recommendation so yes there are some clear failings in how the the current system operates in 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 terms of you know it, how fragmented it is how disjointed how kind of conflicting some of the eligibility criteria can be between and across different services um you know that's one area that there, there clearly needs to be some fairly substantial action but that within that it's not just about the kind of the design and structure of the system it's also about how people are treated within that and how some of those sort of relational touch points take place um and then that often just comes down to sort of compassion and person-centeredness and kindness um and some of that is is both maybe a kind of an easy cheap win but also maybe one of the most challenging aspects of all to to change 
we need to stop thinking that people can manage on their own without any support and that people just need to go away and sort themselves out and then come back when they're better and then they can get the next step of support I think we need to really recognize that even if people aren't in the position to fully engage it doesn't mean they don't need anybody at all they still need somebody um I think somebody talked about you know having someone to walk alongside them you know they don't need to be checking in with them every day every week you know, every and every fortnight, but they just need to know that they're there if they need them and that there's somebody that they could go to. And a lot of people that we spoke to literally didn't have anybody. They didn't have any health. They'd been turned away from every health and social care, formal health and social care service they seemed needed to access. And they also didn't have any family relationships for de- and friendships for various reasons. And how are you supposed to get better if you haven't got those? So I think we just really need to fundamentally rethink how we understand what people need. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying in terms of frustration. It's uh, an area that that certainly needs some some more focus. Um, so speaking of the, the project, so you know it's ongoing. You said you've got another, you've got a year left. What's what's next? So in in the next phase of work that I I mentioned earlier, we really want to sort of build on what we found in the qualitative um, phase and through the work that we've done with people, various stakeholders um, across the region and, and elsewhere. And we're trying to build on on that work to identify some probably small scale improvements that we could pilot um, in the northeast, that might go some way to address some of the issues that we've identified. Um, and we've been lo- working with a local um, primary care network to see if we can um, implement some improvements to both their digital care pathways and the the training um, that they do with their social prescribing link workers. Um, and Conversations are are moving slowly. We all know that primary care is under immense pressure at the moment, which in turn affects the um, ability to to do certain pieces of research. So it's it's slow progress, but we're hoping to do a pilot um, of that kind of intervention, if you like, in 2024. Um, Looking beyond that, um, there are other pieces of work um, around the country that um, are very much in this sort of shared area of of interest. Um, And both Kat and myself are working with some of those research teams, um, including Laura Goodwin's team at Lancaster that I know you're part of, Zoe, um, just to see how we can draw together all those kind of parallel strands of work um, to, you know, shine a bigger light on the issue, but also on the potential solutions. Um, and hopefully that will lead to a larger scale piece of research in the future that can kind of progress this this area um, even more. Brilliant. So there's certainly, well, watch this space more to come. Definitely. Well, thank you both very much for your time and for, for talking to me about your paper. And we'll uh, look forward to, to seeing what happens next. Thank you. Thank you.